I tried to get Jim to come and preach but this morning, but <laughs> he's hard to get a hold of. Uh, I'm actually only just now realizing how bad of an idea it is to try to follow Jim Carrey <laughs> at anything. Um, if you are very confused right now, if you are just joining us, uh, that's basically what we've been trying to get our heads around the last couple of weeks uh, in this sermon series, the, the futility of trying to define ourselves by what we do, uh, by what we have, right? Uh, we spend so much of our lives, so much time rearranging our lives uh, according to these kind of pursuits only to find out, right, that it won't make us, it won't make us enough. Uh, so that's kind of where we've been, and we're going to kind of continue to talk about that. We're going to leave that a little bit behind and join... Um, and join Jesus and the disciples in the Gospel of Luke. Our text for this morning is uh, Luke 6, verses 12 through 13. I invite you to listen to the word of the Lord this morning. Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we, we are here um, seeking a word that only you can speak to us, a word that uh, we hope will free us, a word that will offer mercy to us that we are unable to offer to ourselves. Speak. Speak to us. We are listening. We ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. As I mentioned, we are, we are in the middle of this, this sermon series uh, on how to be yourself. And what we're really trying to do through this series is learn uh, how to claim our identities as beloved sons and daughters uh, of God. Because we are in Christ, that's the way the New Testament speaks uh, of our identity. We are in, we are in Christ. It means that, that God's love and God's desire, God's acceptance um, applies to us because we share Christ's identity. Uh, we are the object uh, of God's love and acceptance, just as Christ is. And yet, as we said, knowing this to be true and living uh, as though it were true are, are two different things entirely, right? And we've been building upon an observation that Henry Nouwen made years ago, that uh, uh, what makes claiming this identity so difficult um, is that we tend to believe one or more myths about our lives that keep us from living as if we are beloved by God, right? These myths, I am what I do, which I spent about 20 minutes trying to debunk only to find Jim Carrey did it in like a minute and a half. That was great for my self-esteem. Uh, and then last week we looked at this myth, uh, I, am, I am what I have. And today we're going to look at the, the, the third uh, myth that Nowen, um reminds us of, and that is, I am what others say or think about me which admittedly is, is just not something pastors struggle with at all. Uh, preachers never worry about whether or not people like them uh, or, you know, or approve of them at all. So this is all for you. This is, I'm here for you this morning. Um, I mentioned last week that, that what, what makes identity so tricky uh, in our current kind of culture is that uh, unlike traditional cultures, uh, our identities are self-determined rather than, than socially assigned. Right, we have the freedom, uh, uh, thanks to kind of the rise of individualism in the West, we have the freedom to kind of decide for ourselves who, who we want to be. Uh, but there's a catch. There's a catch with that freedom. And that is that there is a new pressure, a new pressure to be uh, authentic, to be the real 
you? And where are you supposed to look to find the real you? Where are you supposed to find that? Is it, is it within yourself, right? And I think mostly we have this idea that we have to look inside of ourselves, to our own dreams, to our own intuitions. And when we do that, we'll kind of, kind of know who we are. We'll kind of create ourselves. But that's not entirely accurate, right? Because even if you were able, hypothetically, to do that, like go away to an island, away from everyone and everything, and kind of invent yourself, determine your own self, the thing that you would have to do after that for it to feel authentic or meaningful is you would have to broadcast that. You would have to show that identity to someone else, and someone else would need to recognize that identity. And only when you feel that recognition would you feel that you have arrived at an identity that's actually meaningful, that's actually authentic. And this is why I think this third myth is so powerful right now. So we live in this kind of age of, of recognition. It's actually uh, a technology uh, researcher and author Sherry Turkle put it this way. We could probably capture this time with the phrase, I share, therefore I am. It's on the nose, right? Feel that. This places a lot of power in the hands of other people to determine our own sense of, of self, who we are, and the sense of worth that we have, how valuable we are, especially, as I mentioned, in this digital age where we are so connected, right? If you use social media, you probably feel uh, some kind of need, some impulse to project a certain image uh, in order for uh, other people to kind of approve uh, or notice or recognize uh, your tastes, your opinions, your positions on certain things. And if you do this, you know, like, this is exhausting work. It's really tiring work. I read recently a description of the internet as just like the real world, but with all the mercy vacuumed out of it. It's tiring. And before we go too much further down this road, I want to just make the obvious point um, that I, I think I should make as a pastor, and that is that we do need others to be there for us. Right? Our bodies and our minds are hardwired for connection, for communion with, with, uh, with other people. We hunger for that. And that's, that's just the, the, the way things are. So to say that we're not uh, what others say or think about us, I don't think diminishes the importance of other people in our lives. They contribute to our lives, but they're not determinative of our identities. And please don't hear me this morning. Please do not hear me say um, that like, all you need is, is God. Because God doesn't actually agree with that, right? When God created Adam and it was just Adam and God, God was like, yeah, no, this isn't going to work uh, at all. Which, if you're Adam, has got to feel weird and terrible all at the same time. But God doesn't agree that all you need is God. God created others and, and created connection and community. We need all of those things. So don't hear me say that this morning. We do need recognition from others. But the risk is, the risk is that if we depend too much on this recognition from others, that it actually can turn to judgment. It can turn to judgment. And we find ourselves living, um, uh, trying to prove our worth, uh, to live up to other people's expe expectations of us. So how do we live? How do we live in this age of recognition that we're in without forgetting the truth about us, the truth that we are beloved by God, that that is the kind of center of our identity I think that um, I think one idea is to reclaim uh, the practice of solitude that Christ models for us in the text that we have just read together. This is a, a practice that, that we see Jesus practice often. He withdraws. He withdraws from the crowd uh, to pray. He sets down the demands of his life, uh, the demands of the people in his life, the problems that he needs to solve, 
the pressures of the public ministry that he is, uh, that he is doing, and he spends time in solitude. We're told that, and this is the only time we, we, we read this in all the Gospels, he spends the entire night in prayer to God. And I think there's, there's two things that I want you to see primarily here. The first is that Jesus prepares to be with others by being by himself. Prepares to be with others by being by himself. He, is, he knows he's about to call his disciples. It's a big moment. They're going to come with all of their expectations. And the way he prepares for that is being by himself. If you, if you just take a casual read through the Gospels, you will notice uh, that, that the disciples uh, want a lot from Jesus. They have a lot of expectations for Jesus. And they're not, they're not subtle about like, expressing those wants and those desires um, for Jesus. And so if Jesus is going to remain focused on his calling, this mission that he's received from God, he knows that he's going to need to keep those expectations at check. And one way to do that is to spend time in silent solitude with God, kind of reaffirming and re-listening for what his mission from God is. The point is, is this. If we don't know how to be by ourselves, I don't think that we will know how to be with other people without expecting too much from them, without expecting too much approval from them. And though it might seem counterintuitive, I, I do think that a regular practice of solitude in our life will actually improve the relationships we have with other people. The second thing that I want you to notice about this is that this time alone is, um, it's not just Jesus taking some me time, right? Um, uh, he spends this time in solitude, we're told, like with God and the company uh, of God the Father. Uh, we all need time away for rest and renewal, uh, especially if, if you have a, a demanding life, if you're caring for aging parents or um, young children. Like, yes, take a day away. I have nothing against a, a spa day. Um, but solitude is a little bit more than this, right? Solitude is m- much more active than this. It's the practice by which we try to free our minds from the input of other people so that we can focus on our own thoughts, our own experiences. And in the company of the Holy Spirit, we actually get to kind of voice our questions, maybe our desires, things that that maybe we wouldn't have um, the courage or the clarity to express with other people yet. We're given that opportunity in the company of the Holy Spirit to, to do that. Solitude also involves listening for God and listening to God. As I mentioned, Jesus is about to make a big decision, and the solitude gives him discernment, time to discern what it is that God might have him to, which, which of the, these disciples might he call to be close with him and to send out as apostles. And this listening um, for God is, is not easy under like optimal circumstances, uh, much less the, the noisy and the hyper-connected world that we are living in. There's a lot that distracts us from this intentional listening for God, uh, a lot to distract us from solitude. Maybe you feel that. Uh, a, a few years ago, I woke up to a text message from my friend Scott telling me about his plans to, to ditch his smartphone and go back to a, a flip phone, like a Razor flip phone. Maybe you've had this urge. Scott was concerned that the, that the way that, that his phone, um, the way he was using it was kind of interfering with his life. The, the notifications, the emails, the texts. Uh, he couldn't kind of be alone. He was, he was kind of always on. Uh, I feel that. I don't know if you feel that. And if I'm honest, like part of me was a little bit personally betrayed by this. You know, like he called me out. If you're, someone does something and you feel like it's calling into question like everything that you think is normal uh, and doing. And then I thought like, well, maybe, maybe Scott's just not as important as I am. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't have his, the demands that I have. So that's good for Scott, but you know, I'm not going to do it. Anyway, Scott called me 
later in the afternoon, and I was really curious to hear kind of how this, how this was going his first day in. So I picked up the phone, and I said, hey, man, how, how's it going with your flip phone? He said, I couldn't do it. <laughs> so he had, he had taken the phone back, gotten the flip phone, and then by lunchtime had gone back. Um, he said, I couldn't do it. I took it back, and I upgraded to a new iPhone. It's so like in the course of a day, he had, you know, had this, had this idea to go back to the flip phone and like ended up with a brand new, a brand new phone with all of the bells and whistles. Um, did his failure fill me immediately with self-righteousness? Yes. Yes, it did. Uh, did I ask Jesus to forgive me? Yes, I did. Don't worry. I love this story. I, I, I think about it all the time. And I think that many of us can relate to, to Scott's feeling that his phone is a distraction, right? And yet we've so adapted our lives to these devices, these devices that, that kind of organize our schedules and, and keep us updated on what's going around in the world, give us access to people. It's hard to imagine unwinding, unwinding the clock and going back in time. Uh, there's an app called Moment that, that I don't know if it's still a thing because I know the iPhone has changed the way they, they track your time on it. There's this app that, that tracks uh, how you use the phone. And uh, they, they released a report of their kind of average usage. And what they said was that uh, the average user of this app picked up their phone uh, an average of 40 times a day. And that on average uh, spent about three hours looking, looking at their phones. And if that seems high to you, I, I dare you to be the first person in your row to pick out your cell phone and fact check me on that. Um, but, but they say this is average. It might be higher than that. Uh, this is what their, their users would, would report. And honestly, like if you're the kind of person to download uh, an app about your, your usage, you're probably self-conscious about it. So it's probably higher than that, much higher than that. My friend Nate, uh, he recently went to an orientation for his, his uh, son's school where it was announced that all the students were going to receive uh, tablets. And uh, there, there was this presentation about how integrating these tablets were going to, to help their students um, learn learn better. And uh, in general, Nate said it was a really great presentation and, and that the audience and the parents were really excited about how we were going to use these, these tablets with our, with our kids. And at the end of the presentation, Nate raised his hand and thanked them for all the work that they'd done and, and just asked that if, as they've kind of strategized about their kids using these tablets, in the process of all that strategy, uh, teaching kids kind of to pick up these tablets and use them, had they put in any thought at all into just teaching them how to set them down? And when Nate told me this, my first reaction to it was, man, I bet Nate isn't very much fun at parties. <laughs> um, but it's a good question. It's a really good question. A question not just for students in school, but a question that we should ask ourselves regularly. Um, how are these devices that we're using to organize ourselves and to get access and to, to do really important work and make meaningful connections, how are these same devices also getting in the way of time that we need to spend just with ourselves? And at what cost? At what cost? When I was a youth director a few years ago, um, every year I would take my students to Colorado. And we would go up to just outside of Lake City, and we would do a backpacking trip. And we'd, we'd spend a few nights at the summit, kind of getting uh, oriented to where we were and what we were about to do. And then we would, we would go to the top, and we'd spend a few nights up at the top. And, uh, and then we would, we would hike back down. And on the way back down, Every year, uh, we told the students the same thing. We said that you're going to hike back down alone, by yourself, uh, for about, it's about an hour and a half, two hour hike, hike down, which completely freaked them out, right? Which is, which is great. Uh, but we released them, right, like every five to seven minutes so that they could still kind of see each other, 
kind of going down the mountain, but so that they really did feel uh, alone, so they really could engage in this practice of solitude. And every year, uh, these students said the same exact thing when I asked them, what was your favorite part of this trip? It was that hike down uh, alone, which really surprised me. It really caught me off guard that that was their favorite part of this trip. It was a gift to them, a gift unburdened, um, a, a moment in time unburdened by other people's expectations for them or unburdened by the distraction of a, of a cell phone, a moment that they couldn't um, evaluate just based on likes or comments. It was for its own sake, and they were kind of caught up in it. And almost every single one of them told me the same thing. God met me there. God met me there. Now one says that the question is not, how can I find God? That's not the question. But the question is rather, how am I to let myself be found by God? How am I to let myself be found by God? And if that's true, and I, and I do think that that is true, and I think solitude might just be the practice by which we let ourselves be found by God. And yet, and yet, it's not that easy, is it? It would be, I think, too convenient if the problem was simply our smartphones, our devices, the internet, social media, and we could just kind of blame it on that. I actually think that there's a, a deeper reason for our aversion to solitude than, than uh, just the screens that distract us. I think that many of us avoid solitude because when we are alone, when we are by ourselves, we come face to face with parts of ourselves that we don't want to face. Our own brokenness, our own weakness, our own limitation. So we use, honestly, we use our devices. Uh, we use other things too, but we use our devices to kind of keep us from being by ourselves. We distract ourselves from the anxiety of living with this question of whether or not we are enough, whether we measure up, whether we are worthy. But the paradox of the gospel is that it's precisely by embracing our brokenness, by admitting our weakness, by facing our limitations. It's precisely in this act that we are actually finally freed from the judgments of other people. Because when we can admit that um, we're not perfect, that we are people still in, uh, in process, that of course, of course we will uh, do the wrong thing, we will make mistakes, and of course we have plenty to learn. When we can kind of own up to all of that, when we can admit that, face that, I think that in that act we are actually claiming this identity that we are beloved by God, sinners such as we are. So my friends, my, my encouragement to you is to reclaim solitude for yourself. Put your, put your phone away. If you can't do that, at least just turn off the notifications for a minute or two. Um, and in so doing, let yourself be found by God. For as just as God met Jesus on that mountain, God will meet you there as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? 
Holy God, we want to be found by you. We want to experience the grace and the mercy that you offer us that we are unable to offer ourselves, that others are unable to offer to us. So as we find ways uh, to be uh, enough, as we chase down things that we know will not uh, ultimately fulfill us, we pray that you would find us. Give us the courage to quiet our hearts that we might hear Hear your voice calling us beloved. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.